Welcome back. Just to summarize where we are in Lewis' argument, I'll remind you that Lewis has been arguing that there's nothing about nature that keeps us safe from miracles. And in this chapter, he'll finish his argument that there's nothing about God that keeps nature safe from miracles. Uh, in the previous chapter, he argued that there's nothing about the definition of God that precludes miracles. And in this chapter, Lewis will ask if there's something about the wisdom of God that would preclude miracles. Aren't miracles, after all, a, a violation of the very laws that God has established in his providence in nature? In typical Lewis, Lewis is sympathetic to this human instinct to, to the extent that it arises from the sense that there's something uh, elegant about the order of things and that violating the order of things renders the whole picture a bit inelegant. Lewis finds the feel or feels the burden to redeem and reemploy this very human instinct. And also typical Lewis, he begins to help us to, to see how to think through this matter more clearly by expanding on a metaphor he used earlier in the book about literature. Uh, so let's look at that metaphor. It might seem that poets like Virgil and others sometimes do irregular things in their poetry that break some technical regularities in their art. But Lewis writes, quote, in reality, of course, every one of them is there for a purpose and breaks the superficial regularity of the meter in obedience to a higher and subtler law. Just as the irregularities in the winter's tale do not impair, but embody and perfect the inward unity of its spirit. In other words, there are rules behind the rules and a unity which is deeper than uniformity. A supreme workman will never break by one note or one syllable or one stroke of the brush the living and inward law of the work he is producing. But he will break without scruple any number of those superficial regularities and orthodoxies which little unimaginative critics mistake for its laws, end quote. <laughs> you see what Lewis is saying here. Beauty and art have laws as their canvas, but not as their limitation. The punctuated exceptions in the ordinary are suspended atop a deeper unity of law which grounds both the ordinary rules and their exceptions. As Lewis later summarizes, quote, if miracles do occur, then we may be sure, uh, that, we may be sure that not to have wrought them would be the real inconsistency, end quote. Lewis inverts our impressions here. On the one hand, it might seem that miracles are an interruption of the ordinary show, a kind of arbitrary intrusion. But following Dorothy Sayers, Lewis makes a helpful point. He argues that there are two ways to include miracles in any story that we might write. On the one hand, the miracle might be a, a kind of last-ditch effort to save one's plot line. That is to say, one has gotten their characters into quite a muddle, and the only way to get them out is to resolve the story, and to resolve the storyline is to inject elements that had little to do with the story beforehand. But, writes Lewis, matters are different if the miracle is what you're actually writing about. So Lewis writes, quote, the ghost story is a legitimate form of art but you must not bring a ghost into an ordinary novel to get over a difficulty in the plot. Now, there's no doubt that a great deal of the modern objection to miracles is based on the suspicion that they are the marvels of the wrong sort, that a story of a certain kind, nature, is arbitrarily interfered with to get the characters out of a difficulty by events that do not really belong to that kind of story. Some people probably think of the resurrection as a desperate last moment expedient to save the hero from a situation which had got out of the author's control. The reader may set his mind at rest. If I thought miracles were like that, I should not believe in them. 
if they have occurred, they have occurred because they are the very thing this universal story is about. They are not exceptions, however rarely they occur, nor irrelevancies. They are precisely those chapters in this great story on which the whole plot turns. Death and resurrection are what the story is about. And had we but eyes to see it, that this has been hinted on every page, met us in some disguise at every turn, and even been muttered, uh, 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 and even been muttered in conversations between such minor characters, if they are minor characters, as the vegetables. If you have hitherto disbelieved in miracles, it is worth pausing a moment to consider whether this is not chiefly because you thought you had discovered what the story was really about, that atoms and time and space and economics and politics were the main plot, end quote. Uh, in fact, Lewis concludes the chapter along these lines, quote, we are not for perhaps very attentive readers, end quote. I suspect Lewis would think our uh, inability in modern times to read literature well is probably organically and psychologically related to our incapacity to read the world at large well. And this is what he's doing here is making such a crucial point. And it has implications for how we read the history of special revelation, that is the Bible as well. One thing that is frequently discussed among Christians along those lines is why the Bible seems so full of miracles, but our lives do not. And there's, there's many ways to answer that question, and I can't get into all of them, but at least one reason might be that the Bible is precisely the record of irregular activity around which the entire universal plot turns. That is to say, it is precisely the story of history's most manifest, peculiar, miraculous moments, because it is those moments in the poem that reflect the deeper unity in which the ordinary and the extraordinary are both equally suspended, and also act as the hinge points that move the narrative of God and man forward. And so this could be qualified in a few respects, but we can say minimally that it's not as though the ancient world was just full of miracle-working Moseses or some such. Rather, Israel was quite surprised at the miracles of Moses, as first-century Judeans were at the miracles of Christ, and as we are at the plot twists in the movie that retrospectively makes sense of the whole show. Uh, we should not, Lewis continues to exist, continues to insist, imagine that God is less, an, is less an artist than Shakespeare in this respect. And with, and with that, Lewis is almost ready to talk about particular miracles, but not quite. <laughs> this chapter was on the propriety of miracles, and the next chapter will be on the probability of miracles. So this next chapter will be a sort of hinge chapter. Um, that is to say, even if we admit that miracles are possible and that nothing about God precludes them, how could we ever know that one occurred or consider any particular miracle claim likely? And so after asking and answering that question, Lewis will finally move on in chapter 14 to discuss the central miracle claims of the Christian faith. We will look at chapters 13 and 14 then next week. Uh, but until then, thanks for watching. And I look forward to seeing you again next time.